Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 1. Look at verses 3 through the middle of verse 5 this evening. Just now, let us join our hearts together in prayer, asking for the Lord's blessing upon the reading and preaching of His Word. Once again, Father, we bow before You to bless You and praise You for who You are for us in Jesus Christ, and ask that You would be at work in each one of us to fill us with Your Word and Spirit, to fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ who has passed through the heavens for us, and from there He is returning to transform us into his, into his glorious image. And in, in the meantime, as we traverse through this pilgrimage, through this wilderness wandering, use now the means of grace to give us persevering grace, to work resurrection power within each one of us, to give us that perseverance and endurance and patience to press forward to the fullness of our hope when faith will give way to sight and we will be with Jesus Christ in the place he has prepared for us. Please give encouragement to those who are weary. Please bring conviction to those who are in sin. And please apply the grace of Jesus Christ to every heart present here now for his glory and for our good. We ask in his name. Amen. Please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. As we we began looking at the letter to the Colossians last time, we saw the letter opening in verses 1 and 2, and now we come to the beginning of the letter, Thanksgiving. Remember the occasion of this letter. Epaphras was a convert to Christianity as he traveled west from his hometown in Colossae, traveled west to Ephesus where Paul the Apostle had been preaching. Epaphras was converted under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He travels back home to his hometown of Colossae and plants this church, the Colossian church. And so, because of his interaction with the Apostle Paul, Epaphras went and saw Paul as he was in prison in Rome, brings an update on the Colossian church to him. That update being basically that things were good, the Lord had been at work in these Colossian believers, this young and in many ways insignificant church, but there was a heresy on the rise. There was a false teaching on the rise. So, Paul writes to this young church for a couple reasons, to encourage them to keep doing as they are doing, to combat the false teaching that has come up in their midst, and in doing both of these things, he applies, Paul the Apostle applies more of the fullness of Jesus Christ to these young believers. Well, that should remind us of how we talked about a little bit last time of the so-called Colossian heresy. It's good to know something of the background of this false teaching that had been on the rise in the Colossian church as we go through the book of Colossians. This so-called Colossian heresy 
was basically a mix of Judaism and paganism. More accurately, it was a mix of Old Covenant ceremonial laws with some pagan philosophy. Some of the aspects of this Colossian heresy were that there was a great interest in, a great focus upon evil spirits, evil spiritual forces, and their involvement with man in in the world. So to answer that the influence of evil spirits, this Colossian heresy, this false teaching says to avoid demons, to avoid the influence of the evil in your life, you need to practice certain regulations. You need to practice asceticism and and practice self-denial. You need to observe these certain rituals that we'll tell you about, some of the dietary regulations found in the Old Covenant laws, and doing those things, working, will enable you to have a hold on, to be under, out from under the power of these harmful spiritual forces. Another aspect of this Colossian heresy was the desire to experience God's presence, to be in God's presence in a heightened, special, unique sense. So this, these false teachers were saying in so many words that if you do these right things, similar to the, the practices to avoid the harmful influence of the evil spiritual forces, if you do the right things, if you're a good boy and a good girl, you could enter into not just knowing Jesus like Epaphras told you about, we'll give you the bonus, we'll give you the extra stuff If you do the right things, you could enter into the heavenly sanctuary itself and enjoy closest contact with the living God. That was the false message of the Colossian heresy, the what seemed to be a plausible message. That if you that you're doing the right things, Colossians, Epaphras was right as far as he as far as he was. He he meant well. But he didn't give you the whole truth. We need to add to Jesus. Let's add to that gospel message to give you the bonus, the ultimate kind of spiritual experience. So the message of Colossians, as Paul the Apostle has heard about this false teaching from Epaphras and Paul being a wise pastor, knowing how to apply more of the fullness of Jesus Christ to any kind of false teaching in whatever form, Paul is unpacking in these four chapters of this brief letter that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is all sufficient. Colossians, you have all you need in Jesus Christ. You you do not need to add to him. Rather, you need to draw from him. You have all that you need in Jesus Christ. You can't add to him if you think that you can or should. You fail to appreciate the overabundance of life and glory and blessedness that are yours in him by faith and by faith alone. Don't add to Jesus Christ. Draw from him. Draw from the fullness that is yours in him. So moving into this Thanksgiving section, we see four things in these verses that we've read, and we'll read the the rest of this paragraph, Lord willing, next week. Already, though, as we saw in the opening last time and now in the beginning of this Thanksgiving, already, before we get to some of the more specific addressing of this so-called false, this Colossian heresy, this false teaching, Paul is already firing a shot across the bow to these false teachers, showing the Colossians, you have all you need in the resurrected and ascended, reigning Christ Jesus. That leads us to the first thing we see in this Thanksgiving 
First of all, there is grateful prayer. Grateful prayer. That's there in verse 3. As Paul opens his Thanksgiving section there in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Now there's some, there's some debate here. The, the, verb, the main verb here being we thank God. But does the, the, the similar verb there is we pray for you. So we thank God, we, Paul and, and Timothy, his, his protege, we thank God and we pray to God for you. But what does the always modify? Are they always praying or all, are they always thanking God? Well, the answer is yes, because Paul shows us here that the nature of prayer, for all, for all else that it is, prayer is gratitude to God. We cannot pray to God simply pouring out our request to him, though we must do that. As a child is wholly dependent upon father and mother and must ask from father and mother all that he or she needs for his life. We must pour out our hearts to God in request to him because we are wholly dependent upon him. But we must also, must equally pour out our heart of gratitude, recognizing that we, all that we have is from our heavenly Father, from whom every good gift has come, and as he is the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James chapter 1, verse 17. So who is Paul praying to specifically here? Everything in God's word is, is put for a specific reason. Paul specifically says there in verse 3 that we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So specifically, God is, excuse me, Paul is praying to the first person of the Trinity, to God the Father. Now, God the Father is, of course, the Father of the Son, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, incarnate, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. But how can Paul pray to God as his own Father? How can you and I as believers pray to God the Father as our Father? simply because of what our Lord Jesus says in John chapter 20, verse 17. Remember when he says there, after his resurrection, Jesus says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and to your God. So what Jesus Christ is by nature as Son of God, you and I as redeemed sinners are by grace. We are children of the Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ, made adopted sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges to children of God. We can call God the Father, the first person of the Trinity, our Father as much as Jesus Christ can because of what Jesus Christ has done for his people and because we are in union with him, our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ, and are indwelt by the spirit of adoption. And so how can Paul not pray to, how can Paul not gratefully pray to, and you and I as well, God the Father, because he is our Father, to have that fellowship with him, that communion with him in Jesus Christ. But notice also how Paul describes the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ here. He is exactly that. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he is the Lord not only because he is God, although that is absolutely essentially true, but he is the Lord not in anticipation as Abraham knew him, as David knew him. He is not the Lord in humiliation as the, as the disciples knew him those three days Jesus Christ was under the power of death. He is now the exalted Lord, the hinge on which 
the, the estates of Jesus Christ turns from humiliation to exaltation is his resurrection from the dead. And so you and I know this Lord Jesus Christ. You and I are united to this Lord Jesus Christ, not one who is yet to come and accomplish redemption, not one who is humiliated and under the power of death, but one who is raised from the dead, who possesses newness of life, who gives that newness of life to all who are in him by faith. We are in union with a resurrected and victorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is the exalted Lord, the ascended Lord, the glorified heavenly man, Jesus Christ. Already here, Paul is giving is giving hints here of how what the Colossians have, how what you and I have cannot be added to. We simply draw from the fullness, the overabundant fullness of life and glory and blessing that are ours in our blessed Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the risen Lord. He has resurrection life in himself. Redemption is fully and finally accomplished in him, there is absolutely nothing that could even theoretically be added to him because he has accomplished all that you and I need for all of life and godliness for time and for eternity. He is the risen and reigning Lord. So already, Paul is, is giving us a clue here. He is saying here that in his own piety, his own devotional life, as Paul is in prison, he is already gratefully praying to the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is grateful for who God is for us in Christ, and that is why even in prison, even for this congregation he has never even visited, for this congregation that is not that important, humanly speaking, he is grateful to God because God is a God of grace to all who turn to him in faith and repentance and receive the fullness of Jesus Christ for them as Jesus Christ is freely offered to us in the gospel. That is why Paul offers this constant, this lifestyle of grateful prayer. Greg Beale is a very helpful way of putting this, the connection of gratitude and prayer in the life of the believer. Beale says this, to the extent that Christians have a continual mindset of prayer, they will have a thankful mindset. Spiritual impoverishment comes when believers do not pray, prayerfully contemplate the experience of God's grace in their lives, and such impoverishment results in an unthankful perspective. And how we always need to be reminded of this, that if we are wallowing in bitterness and ingratitude, we need to cultivate and rekindle the flames of that gratitude in prayer to our God, our Father, remembering who he is for us in Jesus Christ, what he has granted to us in Jesus Christ, to have not grumbling hearts, but grateful hearts. So that being the first point, Paul's attitude of grateful prayer that leads us to the next three points we'll look at faith, hope, and love. That'll be the, our final three points this evening. So secondly, we see saving faith in verse four. Now, as Paul talks about faith, then love, then hope here in verses four and five, talking about these three Christian graces, as they've been called, these are the three things that, that specifically Paul is grateful for, how the Colossians are are believing in Christ, are loving one another because of the hope set up for them, reserved for them in heaven. It is these three things that Paul is specifically grateful to God the Father for. So looking at the, 
at that first Christian grace of saving faith there in verse, verse 3. Paul is, is always thanking God when he prays for them. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. So this is part of the, of the report that Epaphras brought to Paul when he was in prison in Rome. Not, not just that, not even primarily that, this false teaching was on the rise. And it, it seems that this false teaching here in the church in Colossae was maybe not as bad as the false teaching was in Galatia, for example. So these young believers, maybe they were, they were naive. Maybe they needed to have more instruction on how Jesus Christ could not be added to, like this Colossian heresy was saying, but they were sincere believers. Epaphras was giving this good report of God's work of grace in this young, in this young church. They have true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is, is first and foremost because faith is the instrument by which, through which, we receive all of the redeeming blessing, all the spiritual blessings that are ours that have been accomplished in Jesus Christ. So Epaphras has brought this encouraging report to Paul while Paul's in prison. There is much to be thankful for because these believers are believers. This young church has faith in Jesus Christ. That, that leads us to consider what true faith is. Listen to how the Confession of Faith, our Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, which is on saving faith, how it describes what that is. This is Confession of Faith, chapter 14, paragraph 2. Listen to how true faith is described here. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the Word, for the authority of God Himself speaking therein, and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. But the principal acts, the main things of saving faith, are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace. This is something that Epaphras had seen in his church plant that he was pleased to report to the Apostle Paul. Do these believers, do they believe in the word? Well, yes, that, that is true. That is an aspect of saving faith. Do they obey the commands of God? Yes, that's an aspect of saving faith. Do they tremble at the warnings and threatenings? Yes. Do they, do they embrace the promises of God in, in his word? Yes, that's true. But primarily, the, the fountain from which all those other aspects flows are those three things we saw as the confession summarizes God's word, accepting, receiving, and resting upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation, both in this life and the life to come. Faith, you could hear in that definition, in that description, is totally distinct from worldly, how our culture talks about what faith is how a person may be a man or a woman of faith, how you have to keep the faith. Don't stop believing with all due respect to journey. Very different, very different from the biblical conception of faith. Not just having a feeling, a feeling of dependence, as Schleiermacher would say, but feeling of dependence, a reality of dependence 
upon a person. Faith has an object. Who is that object here? Clearly portrayed in verse 3. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is nothing if it is not in Jesus Christ. There is a kind of faith, as we saw in our James series, James chapter 2, even the demons have faith. And that faith that the demons have, you know what? It changes them. They tremble at who God is. They believe that God is one, that he exists, and they shudder to know who the living and true God is, who is going to cast them into the lake of fire, which gives torment for all eternity. The faith that the demons has, have, it's real, but it's not real faith. It is just assent to what is true. But true faith, saving faith, is trust, is personal trust in a personal Savior. Not that I depend upon myself or my pedigree, as Paul himself knew in Philippians chapter 3, not what I've done, not where I've come from, not who I am, but what he's done and who he is. Personal faith, the the, the most um, important aspect being trust, is in a personal Savior. I lean upon him and I draw from him all that I need for life and godliness. My right standing with God is from him and in him. I lean upon him alone. That is saving faith, the instrument of salvation, the channel through which we receive all, of, all that is accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, and we rest upon him alone for salvation in this life and the life to come. Faith is the instrument, Christ is the object, and Paul and Timothy give thanks to God for this work of faith, God's work of faith in these believers. Well, that leads thirdly to Christian love. That's in the rest of verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So, to move from the first Christian grace to the second one, from faith to love, faith, you can think of it this way, faith is the, is the vertical and love is the horizontal and always in that order. As we have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that will manifest in love for all who are in Jesus Christ. So not only is the order important, faith first and then love, love must come after faith. It must be both in their proper, irreversible order. Listen to how the old Dutchman, Gedefertus Udemans, I believe is the name. If there are any expecting mothers here this evening, it might be a good name for a boy if you find out that's what you're having. Udemans wrote a, a book on these three Christian graces, faith, hope, and love. He describes the relationship between faith and love in this way. The difference between faith and love is easy to understand, for faith receives while love gives. Faith is the mother while love is the daughter. Faith makes us children of God, but love shows that we are children of God. Faith looks only to God while love also involves our neighbors. Faith lasts throughout this life while love continues through eternity. Very similar to what Uh, Paul himself says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love endures forever. And it is, at least in that context, the greatest of these three Christian virtues. So the, the vertical, faith in the Lord Jesus, our relationship to him, to God, will manifest in the horizontal, will bear fruit in 
love for our fellow believers. Like we talked about with faith, briefly, we need to talk about what love is. There is a worldly concept of love that creeps into the church, that manifests itself in the church. Love is not a a warm, fuzzy feeling for your fellow believer. That will come and go like the weather. Love, rather, to get something of a definition on it, love seeks Christian love, seeks the goodwill of your fellow believer. Love seeks the eternal benefit of your fellow believer. Love is patient and kind and all the rest, that description we see of love in that great love chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. And notice who is loved. Who is the object of love here in verse 4? Paul and Timothy have heard of the love that these Colossian believers have for not some of the saints, but for all of them, for all of the saints. Remember we saw last time as we looked at the opening of this letter who the saints are. Saints is a rich biblical description of those who are in union with Jesus Christ. Just to name a couple descriptions, saints are loved by God. They're under the shadow of his wing. They belong in his heavenly kingdom. They're purchased by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Saints have that special affection, that special redeeming love of God upon them, wholly different from the common mercy of God upon all people. There is a special, fatherly, redeeming love and affection of God upon the saints. That's what makes them who they are. And so we see this principle here that if we have this new identity in Jesus Christ individually, we certainly have that new identity in Jesus Christ corporately. Because union with Christ means union with each other. We saw that in, in the sermon this morning. Paul does not give in that First Thessalonians 4 passage, that wonderful passage about the return of Jesus Christ, he does not give data, information about the return of Jesus Christ to individual Christians and then say, well, remember that and see you later. He ends that chapter with, therefore, encourage one another with these words. All of us will be with Jesus Christ at his blessed return. All of us must love in Jesus Christ while we await his blessed return. It is not a, it is not a negotiable thing that can be dispensed with. It is a necessary aspect of the Christian life, that if you have been loved by Jesus Christ, you will love those who are loved by Jesus Christ. If you are in union with Jesus Christ, you have union with all who are in Jesus Christ as well. Now, there are many things, many ways to, to answer the problems, the life problems that, that arise within the church of annoyance and sin against one another, how we deal with different ways of doing things and personal preferences and things as we lose sight of love for all the saints. How do we love those who are loved by God? Doesn't Paul know that people are annoying and hard to deal with and live with and love? Well, should we remember that we are sinners too and that we need the same grace others need? Well, yes, that can be helpful. Do we need to remember that what I have done against the Lord is not nearly as great, as nearly as heinous as what a fellow believer in, in sin against me has done? Yes, that, that is useful as well. But Paul does something a little differently 
here in, in this passage to talk about the way we can grow in this love for one another as Christ has loved us. Paul has a different tool in his toolbox that we may not use often as we think about how to cultivate, how to grow in love for one another. That leads us to our fourth and final point this evening of heavenly hope. So these Colossian Christians have faith in Christ Jesus. They have love for all the saints. Why? Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. That construction Paul puts there in verse 5 could be put through the hope laid up for you in heaven, but it is very specific that he is talking about basis or cause. How can saints love fellow saints? Because of the hope they all have laid up for them in heaven. I have a hope in heaven for me. You have a hope laid up in heaven for you. And we can love each other now as we await that hope in the future. That is one way, not the only way, but it's the way here that Paul gives for us to grow in our love for one another. We both have, we all have the same destiny and inheritance in Jesus Christ, the same otherworldly hope in common when we will come to see Jesus Christ face to face. And then, of course, with res- resurrection bodies and all sin, all sin and all of its effects taken away fully, we'll of course love each other perfectly then. But in vital contact with that hope now, in vital contact with the one who has given us that hope, Jesus Christ now, we can begin, we can grow in that love for one another while we wait for the fullness of that hope. That is one way to grow in love for one another, to know that we have the same hope in common. And that, I think, helps us to parse out more why relationships with fellow believers can be so difficult. Is that, think of it this way, and take this as your as the counsel from your young pastor, your young doctor giving you this prescription. If you're having trouble relating to your fellow believers, annoyances keep coming up, preferences keep getting in the way, the way they do things from the way you do, the, do things, it might be because the way you relate to your fellow believers is not centered around Jesus Christ. It is centered around probably something else a program, a way of doing things that could be fine, a thousand good things. But none of those things are Jesus Christ. Do we talk about Jesus Christ with each other? Are we going to Jesus Christ with each other, for each other? Do we spend time encouraging one another in the Lord, encouraging one another in his return, as we heard this morning? Are we consciously dedicated to centering our relationships around the Lord Jesus Christ? That might be one way to get at how love for all the saints comes so hard. So this love for the saints is not because certain saints are super spiritual. It's because we all, from the youngest believer to the most seasoned believer, have the same heavenly hope. All believers have the same inheritance. What is this 
what is this heavenly hope? How can we wrap our minds around what this hope laid up for us in heaven is? Gerhardus Voss summarizes that the hope referred to here, the hope referred to in Scripture, is the hope of the future kingdom of God, the final state of blessedness, the hope of heaven and inheritance. To, to use one definition of the kingdom of God, I've heard over and over again, is that the kingdom of God is that reality by which God gives himself to an obedient people, through an obedient, to a holy people, through an obedient federal head in a holy place. So we are on our way to that holy place. We're on our way to a brand new realm where the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. We are part of that holy people in Jesus Christ by grace. And we have as our inheritance and reward, not so much stuff from God, a resurrection body, no more sin and sickness, a a glorified realm where the serpent no longer slithers and, and, and seeks to corrupt the people of God. Those are wonderful things but not so much things from God as God himself. We are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We are heirs of God himself. We have an inheritance who is God himself. And while we have him now by faith, invisibly, we will come to have him by sight and see him face to face when we will be changed to be like our blessed Savior in the totality of our persons, and then we will love one another perfectly. Knowing that that is our hope to come, we can begin to, we can cultivate the grace of this hope by loving one another more and more, better and better now. Herman Ritterboss goes on to describe this heavenly hope, this hope as the, the fullness of God's kingdom, when he says that in Jesus' coming, the kingdom of heaven not only reveals itself as a power that brings the rule of the evil one to ruin and restores life up up to now liable to disease and death, or as a message of salvation and bliss preached to the poor in spirit. The kingdom is also a gift in which those who receive it from God may delight as in an already present possession of a future salvation one day fully to be given to them. So this hope, this hope laid up for us in heaven is not just something that is future, although much of it is, and the, the best of it is future, but it is something that we have presently. We have access to it now by faith because we have access to Jesus Christ by faith. This hope that is laid up for us in heaven is the same hope that Paul will unpack more fully in chapter 3. Just glance over there real quickly to Colossians chapter 3, talking about this hope that is laid up for us now in heaven. He unpacks that in chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That is the hope laid up for you, laid up for me, believer, in heaven right now. It is a hope centered upon 
the resurrected Christ, in whom we have resurrection life here and now. Do you see how he talked about it there in chapter 3? If you then have been raised with Christ. That heavenly hope that is yours now, believer, is resurrection life, is newness of life right now on the inside, such that in the core of who you are, you will never be more resurrected than you already are by faith in Jesus Christ. We already have that newness of life, that resurrection life that is, that is our Savior's given to us now on the inside. And when he returns, that resurrection life will be brought to its fullness, to completion, when we are raised bodily to come into his glorious presence and dwell with him in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. That is our heavenly hope, the hope laid up for us in heaven. As we heard this morning, and and as we, we saw with these other Christian graces, with faith and with love, hope. Hope has been radically misconstrued. Hope has been, has been very much misunderstood in our culture and even in the church. Hope is not, biblically, hope is not a maybe, a I, I hope this will happen in a maybe, maybe not sense. I hope my team makes it to the championship. Hope is a certain thing. Hope is something that you do have, but you don't see it. It is the presently veiled heavenly reality that is yours now, that you do have, that will be made visible to you at the blessed return of Jesus Christ. Hope is the totality of blessing that awaits us in the life to come, but, but is what we do have now invisibly by faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how uh, back in chapter 1, verse 5, the language Paul uses there, that this hope is laid up for us in heaven. This word laid up, very rich word to give us confidence and and certainty that it will not be taken from us. The fact that this hope is laid up for us in heaven means that it's, it's laid up and reserved so that it can be counted on. It is reserved and cannot be taken away. The word expresses the certainty of the believer's future blessing. It is already fixed and cannot be changed. You might make a reservation in a restaurant and find that your table was taken away. This is a reservation that is unable to be removed from the believer. It is put away for safekeeping. It's the same word that that Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 4 of his reward that he is anticipating um, from Jesus Christ for his service. 2 Timothy 4.8, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to, uh, to all who have loved his appearing. There is a, a blessed future. There is a certain blessed future that is the believers, the hope that is reserved for us and cannot be taken away, laid up for us in heaven. The fact that also that it is laid up in heaven for us means that it is otherworldly. It is a different quality of inheritance. It is a higher, the, the highest quality of inheritance for the believer. You might live the way you live and, and amend your ways if you knew that earthly, in earthly terms you were going to receive an inheritance one day at the death of a testator, a mother or father or grandparent or some, something else. You may change the way you live, and, and you may uh, live a little higher than your means if you knew you were getting an inheritance in this life. But you, what we all know, that could change. 
The Christian, on the other hand, can hope perfectly because not only do we know what's coming to us, we know that what's coming to us can never be taken away from us. It's what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 6 about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then when you do that, God will add everything else temporally, earthly speaking, that you need. Or also in Matthew's gospel, how we are to store up treasures in heaven. Why? Because heavenly treasures are treasures that cannot decay or be taken away. These are treasures that Paul speaks of here, this hope laid up for us in heaven where moth nor rust cannot destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. All that is earthly, all treasures that are earthly will decay, will fade away, will be taken away in one way or another. But the heavenly hope that is the believers is reserved in another world. And it is reserved in the highest quality of worlds such that it cannot be taken away, but it will be yours in fullness, and it will be the best when Jesus Christ returns to bring you into his presence and see him face to face. That is what belongs to you, believer. Something, as Ritterboss says, that transcends present earthly reality because it is in heaven, and which is preserved in heaven for the faithful until its revelation in the coming kingdom of God. This is hope that actually can change the way we live now. This is a future inheritance that modifies, that helps us actually by the power of Christ to amend our lives now, to put sin to death, to cultivate more and more of these Christian graces, to love all the saints, and to grow in in grace as the Lord um, conforms us to his image. As we close on this note of, particularly on this note of hope, as Paul concludes here. I want to read one paragraph from Gerhardus Voss's sermon on the Christian's hope as he unpacks the, the practical aspects of it. He talks about what is meant in, <clears throat> in Peter's epistle when Peter is talking about how we have a living hope. Just as living stones are different from ordinary stones, in that they do not wait passively until someone comes and puts them into a building, but lend themselves in free spiritual activity for the purpose of edification. So a living hope is a hope which is not dead material in the mind of the believer, but an active force in his life, something that makes its influence felt and carries him along, that sustains and inspires him. The hope of the Christian can do this, because it relates to something that is not purely future. It already exists in the present because it is a hope and an inheritance, the most real of all realities. The inheritance may be invisible, but this does not detract in the least from its power to become operative in our life. No, the very fact of its being invisible vouches for its efficacy because this invisibility means that it forms part of the spiritual world, and the spiritual world is infinitely more real and infinitely more powerful than the things which our eyes can see. Hence, the Christian, while not having seen it, loves it and rejoices in it greatly with joy unspeakable and full of glory. He fashions himself according to it. He purifies his soul in harmony with the purity that intrinsically belongs to that world. He abstains from fleshly lusts, 
because they war against the spiritual nature of the soul by which he is related to that spiritual realm which is the object of his hope. He is of sound mind, sober unto prayer. In all these things he conforms himself and responds to the claims which his heavenly destiny has upon him. He lives in the presence of the world to come and allows it to be the ruling factor in all he thinks and does. So congregation, you who have your hearts set upon glory, who fix your eyes upon Jesus Christ and rest upon him alone for salvation, know that you belong to this world, know that belonging to this heavenly world, being so heavenly minded will make you the most earthly good. Have your hearts set upon this heavenly Savior who will make you more and more ready for and and fit for dwelling with him in heavenly glory. And love one another, your fellow brothers and sisters who have a, a part in this inheritance as well, as we all together traverse through our pilgrimage to go not to our hope, but to the reception of our hope and see it with our own eyes and be made like our Savior to worship and glorify Him and enjoy Him in perfection for all eternity. May God add His blessing to the reading and the preaching of His holy word.